Hi guys, Abel here. In this episode, I once again bring along one of the biggest brains of the fitness industry. It's always nice to talk to people who are right at the source of information we are feeding on. These guys really don't care about catchy headlines, trends and hot selling points. They care about the data and they are graciously presenting it to us in its most unsexy but yet most beautiful simplicity. Did that sentence make any sense? Well, bottom line, my guest today is someone very smart, someone whose information is always heavily evidence and science based and is someone who you will learn a lot from. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm presenting to you James Krieger on today's episode. He has a master's degree in nutrition, is a former research director, and now is a published researcher with several papers underneath his belt in the realms of weight loss and nutrition. He's the founder of Weightology.net, a greatly informative blog on which you can learn about all kinds of nutrition fitness-related concepts, and according to him, his primary research interest is insulin and carbohydrates, which is good because there's more than enough informational shitstorm out there regarding these topics. So what did we talk about? Well, we discussed in depth the scientific research regarding artificial sweeteners. So is it safe to consume aspartame or sucralose containing products such as diet sodas? And if so, how much is too much? There seems to be so many cited research out there showing how bad they are. So what's the deal with those? Well, we will find out. And the second topic, what's the deal with body fat testing methods like DEXA or BOTPOD or underwater weighing? I mean, those are what we commonly think of as the gold standard, but I mean, there are pretty weird YouTube videos out there with completely shredded people getting pretty high body fat percentages. So how accurate are these devices? Luckily, we will find it out as well. Again, as always, watch out for the timestamps in the description, as well as for all the resources that are mentioned in this interview. I hope you enjoy it, and without further ado, let's get some wisdom from James Krieger. As we all know, uh, the general message of the fitness industry is that anything that is remotely pleasurable can only be terrible for you and everything that sucks is good for you. So in that line of thinking, artificial sweeteners can only be terrible for you because they taste good. So from a 10,000 foot view first, what's the, the general verdict on artificial sweeteners? The, there's nothing wrong with them. I mean, uh, they're, they're, they have, there's pretty much no adverse effects other for the vast, vast, vast majority of people. There's no reason to avoid them. They're, they don't cause cancer. They don't, they don't do all these other things that if you do Google searches, you find all these supposedly bad things that they do. Um, that, that there's no truth to any of that. Uh, you know, they're actually a very effective tool for people to, for especially people that are interested in losing weight and things like that. There's lots of data out there that show that they, they are very helpful in people um achieving their their weight and fat loss goals so um i consume artificial sweeteners all the time on a daily basis um uh wayne norton had a funny joke one time that he that he put online quite a while ago and he joked that he uh he had had like a combination of aspartame and like some other artificial ingredients and he jokes he goes man i'm, I'm surprised i haven't spontaneously combusted or something like that <laughs> Um, but it's just, it's just ridiculous. The, 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 the information that, that people put out there on artificial sweeteners that 
that they're they're like you know they're like one of the worst things out there and they're not they're actually extremely beneficial and and uh, like i said i consume on a daily basis and i will continue to consume them on a daily basis um and i'm a person who's very concerned about my health so you know it's it's not like i'm throwing caution to the wind like i'm just very familiar with the scientific data on all of it and there's really nothing wrong with any of it so okay so right now i imagine um a lot of people listening to this are hugely relieved and and i, I am one of them but on the other hand there will, there will be a lot of people who say that well okay this james guy seems like a, a very smart guy but there are other very smart people on the internet who claim the exact opposite and they will tell you that artificial sweeteners are terrible for you and not only that but seemingly they actually cite a lot of studies um, when they say this so what is the problem with the studies that claim that artificial sweeteners are problematic well the problem is with the studies that they're citing so for example sometimes they'll cite you know there's a few studies out there that uh, that are basically just observational studies that that show correlations between artificial sweetener intake and, and obesity and weight gain. Um, and, and so then people will take that data and say, oh, look, see, if you consume artificial sweeteners, it's going to make you gain weight. And that's actually not true because if you look at the controlled studies, the randomized controlled trials, it's actually the opposite. So, you know, the problem with observational research is it cannot establish cause and effect. And um they only show associations and really the reason you see those associations that sometimes you see the association between artificial sweetener intake and obesity is because usually obese people are are interested in trying to lose weight so they may consume a lot more artificially sweetened products be just because they're interested in trying to lose weight but it's not the artificial sweeteners causing their obesity or causing their weight gain um you know it's just like you know ice cream intake goes up in the summer and drowning incidents goes up in the summer, but that doesn't mean eating ice cream is going to cause you to drown. You know, it's an association, but it's not a causal association. It's the same thing with, with artificial sweeteners and obesity. So, so that's, that's, you know, some of the research that people have cited, you know, there's also, there's been one or two studies that have looked at gut bacteria. Um, you know, there's one study on sucralose that just supposedly showed an adverse effect on gut bacteria, but, there were a lot of flaws in the study and um, and there's no evidence that any of the, the small alterations in gut bacteria that they saw would actually have any harmful impact at all. Um, and so, um, again, you know, the best studies are your randomized controlled trials. Um, there's plenty of studies on both rodents and humans um, and they really show no adverse effects. I will say one more study that uh, set of studies that people have cited. Um, these were some studies out of Italy, out of the uh, Ramazzini Institute, um, that supposedly showed aspartame causes cancer and, um, and sucralose causes cancer and things. And all of those studies have been completely debunked by the major, all the major scientific organizations because the studies were highly flawed. Um, their procedures were highly flawed. Um, their study, their research has not been replicated by other researchers, independent researchers. And that research group has been accused of kind of having a, um, an interest in being more interested in publicity than actual good science, because it seems like everything they publish shows things to cause cancer. It seems like no matter what they study and they, they have this tendency to 
rather than going through proper avenues to broadcast or research, they, they go to the news organizations and the headlines. So um, uh, particularly Seralini is the uh, name of the, the head author in a lot, number of these papers. And, um, and actually some major scientific organizations have actually asked the Ramazzini Institute for their data so that they can verify these results and the Ramazzini Institute won't even give up their data, won't show their data. So, so those studies really are pr pretty much, I consider total bunk uh, based on all those reasons. So um, again, when you look at the best controlled studies on both humans and animals, um, there's, there's no reason to avoid arti artificial sweeteners um, at all. So, I mean, the, the only case is if you are a person with um, oh, what's the name of the condition? When you, um, if you have what's called phenylketonuria, um, which means you can't metabolize the, the amino acid phenylalanine, then you actually, you have to limit your aspartame intake. But I mean, you know, a, a minute percentage of the population, very, I mean, less than 1%, I don't know what the percentage is, but it's extremely tiny actually have PKU. So, um, other than that, really, there's no reason to avoid any artificial. Now, what about red studies or, or um, because there, there seem, or at least as far as I know, there are red studies that show that they give an absurd amount of, of, of us aspartame, for example, to them and they develop cancerous um, symptoms. Though. Again, those are the Ram, those are the Cirillini studies, the Ramazzini Institute that I mentioned. Um, if you look at any other studies by other groups um, that they don't show that they, they that that's actually not been shown to be true. And, and here's the other thing I wanna say about rodent studies and, and artificial sweeteners. What a lot of people don't understand is that um, they don't understand how um, there is a, basically the major scientific organizations like the European Food Safety Association or, or EFSA, I don't remember the exact terms, um, or Food Safety Authority, I'm sorry, the European Food Safety Authority um, in the United States, it's the Food and Drug Administration. Um, you know, these organizations uh, will basically give upper limits uh, what are considered safe intakes for various artificial sweeteners. And the way they establish that is they will take the rodent studies and um, – because what they'll do with rodents is they'll give them varying levels of doses for an extended period of time. And usually the, the lifespan of a rodent is, you know, two years or something like that. So, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll take these, you know, two year long studies um, that they were, they've given rodents varying dosages of, of whatever artificial sweetener you're, you're thinking about. Um, and what they get is, is what is called the no observed adverse effect level. It's, it's abbreviated N-O-A-E-L. And what that is, is that is the largest dose where no adverse effects were observed in rodents. Okay. So, so that's the highest dose that's been found. Okay. We couldn't see anything bad happen at this dose. Then what they do is they take that dose, they divide it by a hundred. And then that's what they set the upper limit as for people. So, so for people, basically people are consuming and most people, um, people usually don't even come close to the, what is considered the upper limit for humans on these artificial sweeteners. So, so the thing is, is wherever the upper limit is for any of these artificial sweeteners, there is already a 100 fold safety factor built into that, which means, I mean, you will never ever consume the amounts that there's just no way any human can consume the amounts 
um, that have actually been shown to be harmful in rodents. Um, there's, it's just impossible. There's just no way. Um, and like I said, um, you know, I mean, you don't even come close. Again, there's a hundredfold safety factor built into that. So, um, you know, I'm going to just make up numbers here. And I don't, you know, let's say, and don't don't quote me on these exact numbers because um, let's say the adverse, the no observed adverse event le- or effect level for an aspartame is a, a thousand milligrams per kilogram. Okay, I'm just making up numbers in rodents. Well, they'll take a thousand divided by a hundred and they'll say, okay, well, the maximum amount people should have is a hundred, a hundred milligrams per kilogram of body weight. Well, most people will never exceed a hundred milligrams per kilogram of body weight, let alone get even close to a thousand, you know? So, so there's no, um, there's just no reason to be concerned about, about artificial sweetener intake that the amounts people consume are, are, are like just a bare fraction of, of even what's been found to have any adverse effect on rodents so yeah um so uh, actually i was going to make this comment at the end but as far as i know the the aspartame uh limit is i think 50 milligrams per kilogram and and i actually did the math that would that would be i think like 19 cans of so uh, of of diet soda for a 75 kilo male and and but 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 like i was thinking like okay I am actually around 75 kilos and I have a pretty extreme personality. If I was dieting down to like a bodybuilding show or something, I'm not saying I would actually reach 19 cans, but there might be a chance that on some worse days I would actually get pretty close. But what you're saying is that even then, probably it's not 19 cans, it's in reality, it's more like uh, 190 cans. Yeah, it's more like 190 cans. It's just, you know, they've built a safety buffer into that. So, um, and like I said, and that's, and that's consuming that much on a daily basis. You know, these rodents consume that much on a daily basis for two years, every single day for their entire lifespan. So Mm -hmm. like you said, even, even if, even if you were to exceed the acceptable daily intake on aspartame, you're not going to do it every day. And you're certainly not going to do it every day for most of your life. So, um, you know, and, and that's, again, that's not even that's not even counting the fact uh, that hundredfold safety factor on top of that. So, yeah. And, um, so let's look at some of the, the common claims that are made regarding art- artificial sweeteners. Now you already mentioned the gut flora thing. That was something that got a lot of press as of lately. Is, is there anything that we can know about that study? Why that is not something that we must be concerned about? Um, well, the one study that I'm thinking of, um, there were a number of problems with it, and I, I'd have to go back and look. I remember I actually wrote an article about it. Um, uh, there were inconsistencies in the data. There were, again, I'd, I'd have to go back and look. I don't remember the exact details of the study, but basically I just remember looking at it and said, basically I was like, why are people making a big deal out of this study? Because it wasn't, it wasn't anything that really, uh, that really could be shown to be of any concern. So, um, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I simply just don't see any evidence that any impacts on gut flora are, are really going to be detrimental from, from the data that I've seen. So, okay. And, um, th- there were two studies that, that sort of caught my eye and, and one of them, I think they were obese, but non-diabetic men who, who consumed, uh, I think an order, I think a liquid with sucralose or aspartame, I kind of forgot. And they, they were shown to have uh, worse blood glucose control afterwards. 
Um, now, I, I guess the, the question is, is, is it conceivable by any measure that people who actually have problems with, with pre-diabetes or diabetes might actually be concerned about artificial sweeteners? Um, personally, I say no. And the reason I, um, I vaguely recall the study you've talked about, but I'd, I'd have to go back and look at it. But the reason is, is because, you know, the reason I have no concern about that is because, you know, the main thing that affects glucose control is insulin resistance, right? And if you're obese, the biggest thing that's going to help you is to lose weight. And, and if artificial, and there's, again, a lot of randomized controlled trials that show artificial sweeteners help people lose weight, which in the long run is actually going to help your blood glucose control. Um, that's why any acute study that looks at, you know, a small change in blood glucose control after, you know, one meal or after one drink, it, to me, that's not, it's just not relevant because, um, uh, I mean, number one, the, the applicability of that is not, uh, you know, I'm not sure the applicability of that in a real life situation. And number two, um, again, you have to weigh that against the, you know, you know, if the artificial sweeteners help people reduce their calorie intake and, and then the people lose weight as a result of that, their blood glucose control is actually going to improve over time. It's not going to get worse. So, um, um, so yeah, so that, you know, that, that one that one study and again I, I vaguely recall seeing it but uh, I'd have to go back and look at it I, I it's just something I wouldn't be concerned about and re regarding that another another claim was something like when you co-ingest glucose with artificial sweeteners preceding that glucose load because your body has um, sweet receptors all over it it could actually increase your insulin response because your body is anticipating something sweet. I guess basically the question is, could it be that eating carbs together with artificial sweeteners might increase the insulin output of your body? And secondly, if that is the case, how big of a deal is that? So what you're talking about is there's what's called cephalic first phase insulin response, which is basically, yeah, I mean, you have taste receptors on your tongue and things like that and where, where actually your your body will start to release ins, a little bit of insulin in response to the anticipation that you are going to be receiving glucose um, and it's been shown that in some studies that 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 is also true um, if you consume artificial sweeteners well the thing is is number one the response is very small and number two there's no evidence that has any physiological consequence at all i mean it's not again i've done a lot of presentations on insulin and you know, people need to just forget about, you know, forget about insulin responses to meals. It doesn't matter. You know, there's, you know, that's a whole nother, another ball game there, but, it, but, uh, yeah, yeah. um, you know, and if anything, sometimes, you know, a cephalic phase insulin response is actually a good thing. And there's, you know, there's one drug out there called, um, exenatide, uh, um, and like the, the trade name is Bietta. Um, you know, one thing about people with type two diabetes is is they actually lack a first phase insulin response, um, and Bietta has been found to actually restore that response in type people with type two diabetes, and so so basically it's a drug that actually enhances insulin secretion and it actually causes weight loss on top of that. So um, so there's really no again, it, you know. It, you know, yeah, artificial sweeteners may cause a, a small increase in insulin, um, you know, when you consume them. But again, there's no evidence that that's, 
you know, it, it's not relevant. It's, it has no, it's not going to have any really true physiological impact on you. So. Right. Um, and, and I think finally to wrap up the, the topic about artificial sweeteners is just, let's mention a couple of things that, that actually might prob people might want to be, uh, aware of those because these things could actually be problematic. And one is that a lot of the artificial sweeteners that are claimed to be zero calories are not actually zero calories, but that's not, not an artificial sweetener problem. That's a food labeling legislation problem. And, and second of all, just so dieters, especially so you know, if you consume diet sodas on their own without other nutri nutrients, it can actually make you hungrier. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you, yeah, if you consume some diet sodas alone, maybe, I mean, it's going to vary person to person. To me, artificial sweeteners are a tool. They're a very important tool that people can use to help them in their fat loss and weight loss goals. And I really don't, I don't think I have anything else to add to that. Other so. Okay, fantastic. So general conclusion. So people, if you drink real soda instead of diet soda because it tastes better, then good for you. If you drink it because you think it's healthier, then just shut up and get on with your life. <laughs> so... Um, okay, so James, let's get, get on to the second topic here that I definitely want to get your take on because it's another hot topic or although uh, a little bit less, I guess, emotional, but it's body fat testing. So that's, that's something you wrote a great series about. It's a fantastic article series. I will link to it in the show notes. Uh, again, what's the 10,000 foot view general verdict on body fat testing accuracy? It's not very accurate, even the best methods. I mean, that's, that's what I want to sum up for people. Like, you know, if you have your body fat tested, whatever the method, and it says it's, you know, 10%, there is a certain error rate in that 10%. Um, that 10% is just an estimate. The only way that you can actually measure your body fat is if I were to kill you and cut off all your fat and weigh it on a scale. And obviously we can't do that. So so, so we are left with tools to try to predict what your body fat is based on other things that we can measure. And so that's where all these different testing methods come into play. They are all using, they're all measuring something that, that is associated with your body fat levels and then saying, okay, well, based on this measurement, we think your body fat percentage is about this number, right? But it's an estimate, right? I mean, it's, 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 you know, it's like when the weatherman says, oh, you know, you've got a 70% chance of rain tomorrow. He can't say for sure whether whether it's going to rain or not. He just can give you a certain probability of, of what, what it might be to rain, that it's going to rain. And the same thing with these body fat percentages. It's just an estimate. And it's, it's basically just a ballpark guess, really, or an you could call it an educated guess on what your body fat percentage is. Now, some techniques make better educated guesses than others do. But they're all educated guesses, even the ones that people think are the best, like dual energy X-ray absorptiometry or DEXA. That's still an educated guess. It's, you know, and and there's even problems with DEXA. So, you know, people should not get hung up on the number on the body fat percentage number, um, uh, you know, when it comes to comes to to, to fat loss. Um, so and and especially especially with things like bioelectrical impedance or BIA, which is one of the worst techniques, I would say. Um, so that's kind of a nutshell. It's, I just, I just want people to remember it's an estimate. It's a very rough estimate and, and just don't, don't get too hung up on the number that, that you, you see whatever technique you've, you've been tested with. So um, 
you, you mentioned DEXA, and I, and I guess that's the one that everybody kind of commonly refers to as like the gold standard. If you and that's we, the thing, it's not. It's not. A, it's not the gold standard, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, a lot of people think it is, but it's not. I mean, I mean, the true, the true gold standard. Um, what we would call the gold standard is is what is called a a four compartment model, and that's where you actually have to be tested. You know, you're only going to see this in in re in certain research studies, and and what what basically they have to do is they have to. Um, they get your body density usually with, you know, like hydrostatic weighing. They get your body density, but then they, they use something called deuterium dilution to get your body water levels. Then they'll use DEXA to get your bone density. Um, so they use all these techniques because what you're trying to do is, is split your body into basically four, four components. That's why it's called a four component model. You're trying to split it into um, body water, um, protein mass, um, fat mass and then then the the non-protein or, or like the bone mass i think i, I can't remember exactly the four component the components but that's why it's called a four component model but again you can only do that in research studies because it's very expensive to do so everything every other technique dexa hydrostatic weighing everything else is compared to that four component model um and that article series that i wrote basically i looked at the studies that actually compared the various techniques to a four component model and um, um, so, so that's the thing. It's like, you know, the thing with DEXA is what a lot of people don't realize, you know, a lot of people know that like BIA is affected by body water and things like that, you know, shifts in body water. But a lot of people don't realize is that all the, all the body comp techniques are affected by changes in body water. Even DEXA is, mm -hmm. um, in fact, if you glycogen deplete, you know, let's say you go on a very low carb diet and do a bunch of exercise to deplete your muscle glycogen, um, have you have yourself text, tested by DEXA and then do like a three day carb load where you just consume massive amounts of carbs and drink a bunch of water and test yourself on DEXA again, you're going to show a big increase in fat free mass. But that's just that's just a big increase in body water is all it is. So so pe what people don't realize is that that all the body comp method methods are, are affected by changes in body water. So yeah, so um... So, for example, I mean, I guess bot pod and underwater weighing and, and DEXA are, are what's commonly available for people and and what yeah. are somewhat considered scientifically reliable. But what you're saying is that it's essentially like weathermen looking at certain factors and based on that predicting what's the most likely outcome. But it's still a prediction. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, um, and, and that's the thing. It's like... Um, uh, and, and so here, here's the thing with weathermen, you know, we, the weathermen are making certain assumptions, right? There's certain assumptions that they're making when they're making these predictions. Well, it's the same thing with the body testing your body composition. Every method is based on certain assumptions, assumptions that actually a lot of times don't hold true. So, uh, you know, I'll use um, underwater weighing or hydrostatic weighing as an example. Hydrostatic weighing assumes that, um, that your fat-free mass has a certain amount of water in it that has a certain hydration level. Um, well, it's been found that as you lose weight or gain weight, that number actually changes. So you're changing the assumption that the hydrostatic weighing is based off of, and which then affects the outcomes of the hydrostatic weighing and affects the prediction, the accuracy of the prediction. So, um, so again, that's why, you know, even things like hydrostatic weighing and things like that, they're just predictions and, and there can be, you know, significant errors with them at times. 
um, especially for people that are losing or gaining weight, um, because some of the things that the you know that the assumptions are based off of are are changing as you lose or gain weight. Okay, so let let's see, uh, get a hypothetical situation. So some bro goes and gets Dexa and gets him at. 10% body fat and he wants to commit suicide because he was hoping for nine. Um, <laughs> but like, what's the range if, if in between that actual number could be? Well, it's pretty big on an individual level for individuals, for any, any one person, you know, a DEXA scan can have anywhere from a three to 5% variation in error rate. So that bodybuilder who was 10%, he could be as low as five or as high as 15. I mean, you know, um, now, now in most people's, it's probably not going to be that big of a range, but still, it's still going to be around probably plus or minus three. So if that bodybuilder is 10, he may be as low as seven and he may be as high as 13. Um, so we're talking pretty big error ranges, you know, even for the better techniques. Um, and don't even get me started on BIA. I mean, there's some studies that show, you know, plus or minus 8%. I mean, so if you if you test yourself on BIA and it says that you're that you're let's say fifteen percent, well you could be as low as seven or as <laughs> as high as uh, as high as twenty two. So um, uh, it's it's a pretty pretty big error rate. So uh, so, um, so so people need to keep that in mind. Yeah, and 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 I guess this this explains these YouTube videos that that you know people go there and. They look like a shredded, like six percent bodybuilder, and they get like twelve percent or something. It's just yeah. uh, so. Um, so ju just as an example, I mean, I, I I've seen a picture of you just before or just around your your um, show that you did. Yeah. And I believe you did get uh, tested. What what kind of testing method was that? I, I did uh, um, about six weeks out. I had Dexa, but then then basically like three four days out of the show, I had hydrostatic weighing done. So, and that hydrostatic wing had me in the single digits. It was like, it got me at 8.9% uh, or something like that. So, yeah. um, but again, you know, again, that's just a, that's just a rough estimate. So. And, and would you say it was, um, I, I mean, I, I saw your picture. It was probably roughly accurate, but again, it was. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's roughly, I mean, obviously I was, I mean, I was, I was show and stage ready. I mean, yeah. you know, um, you know, and I was at the level that most men's, I mean, most men's physique competitors, when you test them in a competition, they're going to be the high single digits, you know, approximately, you know, now for competitive bodybuilding, it's going to be a little bit lower than that. You know, I, I wasn't lean enough for, for bodybuilding show, but, but I'm not really big enough to be competing in bodybuilding either. So, yeah. So I, I guess general verdict is, is, um, don't, don't like spend your money on, on Walden farms, peanut butter or something more valuable, but, um, I, in terms of, because we, okay, individual measurements will be pretty inaccurate, but in terms of being consistently accurate or inaccurate, what kind of testing methodology would you recommend to people? Oh, that's tough because even, even with changes, tracking changes over time, it can be difficult. Um, cause they're, like I said, the error, um, you know, changes in hydration with, as, as you change uh, your body composition can actually affect the accuracy of the, of the, of the method. So usually this is what I recommend to people. Um, whatever technique you use, um, make sure your testing is quite a ways apart, like, like quite a number of weeks apart. Because, you know, if you're, you know, 
if you get tested and then you get tested again five weeks later, you know, that's not a big enough time frame. Um, you know, it, you know, the change that you'll see in five weeks um, is going to be actually smaller than the error range for the actual whatever technique you're using. So, um, so, you know, don't be getting your body fat tested every four or five weeks or something like that. You know, you want to go, you want to go 10 weeks, 15 weeks, you know, long enough periods of time to where, you know, any change that you have is going to exceed the error margin of the, of the testing technique that you're using. So that's the first recommendation. Um, the second one is, you know, I would say for tracking change over time, um, you know, um, you know, I'd say DEXA and Hydrostack weighing are, are reasonably okay. Um, there's, there could be some problems with DEXA. Well, there's really could be some problems with both of them. Um, you know, make sure at least, you know, if you, you, you want to be standardized as much as possible. Um, if you're going to use skin folds, um, I wouldn't really worry too much about the number itself. I would more just be concerned, you know, concern yourself with make sure you've getting the same tester at, you know, the same person doing it each time. Um, and, and make sure you, you know, take a number of skin folds and maybe take the average. Um, and then, um, and just, and just really look at the, uh, the, the skinfold measurements themselves, not, not what your, your body fat percentage is projected to be, but just, you know, are the skin folds going down over time, you know? So, um, now the methods I, I recommend not using, I don't recommend using BIA at all, um, for tracking change over time. It's just, it's very problematic. Um, I mean, I can use, uh, you know, just for, for example, you know, I used to, uh, work for a weight management program, uh, for Microsoft employees and, um, and you know we tested their body fat with BIA and we would have a lot of people who lost significant amounts of weight I mean their waist circumference had gone down I mean you know their their blood markers had improved obvious improvement obvious improvement and yet yet the BIA would actually show an increase in body fat percentage which is just ridiculous so so I, I don't rec I do not recommend BIA for tracking change over time I'd say it's it's definitely probably the worst technique out there um, for, for tracking change over time. Um, I, I'd say, you know, like I said, skin folds, hydrostatic weighing, DEXA, um, are probably your best bets for, for tracking change over time. But again, make sure you space out the measurements quite a, quite a ways apart. So. Yeah. Right. And, and, and just my quick comment on that, but probably is, is, is a very effective way is just pick a number of, of experts that, you know, who are good at estimating body fat percentages send them your pictures and yeah. your, get their estimation and take an average of that. And that will probably get you pretty close. They probably will. <laughs> yeah, there we go. Okay, James, uh, I think you shared some fantastic golden nuggets here uh, of information. Is there anything uh, that um, you would like to mention uh, before we wrap up this show? Yeah, um, so I'm gonna be speaking in Norway um, at the uh, AFPT conference. Um, uh, here at, in the end of August. Um, so I think if you go to AFPT.no, I think is the website. I don't, I don't recall exactly. Um, but I'll be speaking there along with Alan Aragon and Brad Schoenfeld and, uh, um, Eric Helms and some other people are going to be there. Uh, Brett Contreras will be there. Um, so that's going to be a great event. Um, and then later this year, I'm, uh, maybe I'm looking to possibly revamp my website and maybe start my subscription site again. Um, uh, right now it's just kind of in planning stages. Um, 
but you know, for people that are interested, you know, just keep an eye out. Uh, um, you know, follow me on Facebook or on Twitter. You know, uh, you know when it's it's going to be a number of months before it's it's ready to go. But uh, um, once I get that going, you know, I'll, I'll be making announcements about it. But right now, it's kind of in the planning stages. So. Fantastic. Yeah. And the conference in Norway, that's a ridiculous list of names. I mean, that's, yeah. that is, yeah. is insane. So highly recommend it to everybody. Just, just one final question. I almost forgot. Um, just, just to give people some motivation. Uh, I'm, I'm sure a lot of young guys will listen to this and, and will think, okay, I want to do what James does. He's an inspirational dude. Um, what would you say to them as, as an advice if they want to get into this industry and do what you do? Um, I would say, you know, just try to learn as much as you can. I mean, I mean, not, you know, not just following guys like Alan Aragon, uh, um, and Brett Contreras and Brad Schoenfeld and those guys, you know, not only following these guys, but, but really try to learn how to read research if you can. And if you have the chance to get, get a formal education in this area, then it's all the, then, then even better because it gives you the tools to actually maybe evaluate even better, evaluate the information that's out there um versus if you don't have those tools so um you know you just you know you work hard at it um try to establish a niche for yourself and um and you'll eventually get to where you want to be so right so just get as educated and smart as you can and yeah long way to go then awesome that's well fantastic uh thanks so much for taking the time big fan of your work and please keep up the amazing work that you do all right, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, I told you it will be interesting. James is a very smart dude and got some golden nuggets. So if you enjoy this, please subscribe. I mean, there will be more guests with greatly informative topics and interviews. So I will not disappoint. I thank you once again for your attention and see you next time.